Hey, everybody. We have one more live show coming up this fall. On Thursday, October 6th, we will be talking about the Reynolds pamphlet at Hudson Mercantile in New York City. This is an all-ages show, but we are talking about Alexander Hamilton's torrid affair, so judge your own family's ages accordingly. If you'd like to get tickets, you can go to NewYorkComicCon.com slash events slash NYCC dash presents. You do not need a New York Comic Con badge to attend this show. It is open to the public. Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Ben. And we're from Car Stuff. We're the podcast that covers everything that floats, flies, swims, or drives. Adventures, thrills, chills, literally planes, trains, and automobiles. That's right. And you can find all of our episodes on Google Play, Spotify, iTunes, and really anywhere else you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Tracy, what? Is that time of year again? Is, is that time uh, autumn? It's the best time of year, not just autumn, but Halloweeny time. Uh, so as we get into October, for any of our new listeners that might not know, we can talk about some fun spooks and haunts and scary stories. Uh, we can talk about them year round. There's no law against it, but we like to, to get some extra spooky stuff going on here as we get into the Halloween season. We make a special point. Uh, yeah. It's a special enough point that for, for long time listeners, last year, when literally the first two podcasts in October were not Halloween, some people got real mad. And today's topic is one that we often get requests for, uh, and it's a little bit tricky, as many stories along these lines can be, because a lot of the information is not just apocryphal, it is flat out made up. Um, but we're going to talk about how the legend of the Bell Witch became a well-known part of American lore. But first, uh, we are going to indulge in the fall fantasy of talking about the alleged paranormal story as it is often told. So the primary account of the Bell family and what happened on their Tennessee land uh, is a book that was written in 1894 by Martin Van Buren Ingram, and it's entitled An Authenticated History of the Famous Bell Witch. But that book was written more than 75 years after the events of the story, and even in the introduction... It kind of sets up this scenario that makes it impossible to refute. Ingram claimed that he was working from an account that was written by a member of the family, William Bell, and that the family had declined to publish that account while any of the involved parties were still living, but that he had come in and, you know, managed to to make this deal and, and promise that he would tell the true story. Uh, by the way, that that manuscript that he claimed to have used, there's no evidence of it ever existing. Uh, but... He also, and when I say he, I mean Ingram, also acknowledges that many people had already come to the conclusion that the entire haunting was a hoax, possibly perpetrated by members of the Bell family for some sort of financial gain. But he dismisses that by describing how William's account was written in an effort to clear the family name and prove once and for all that the whole thing really happened. It's one of those things that once he lays it all out there, like the rebuttal is sort of, nah. Like, <laughs> Right. So first, we're going to talk about the story as it is laid out in that book, and then we will talk about it from a more skeptical perspective. The story all starts with the family patriarch John Bell, who was born in Halifax County, North Carolina in 1750. He apprenticed as a cooper for a while, but eventually decided to become a farmer. 
At the age of 32, he got married to Lucy Williams, who was 20 years younger than he was. Yeah, that was one of those things that when I first did the math there, I got real creeped out. And then I was like, oh, this can't be right. And then I kept looking at other sources and it kept lining up. Uh, the couple had their first child, a son named Jesse, eight years later. So at that point, Lucy would have been 20 uh, in 1790. And the Bells initially did really well with their farm in Edgecombe County, North Carolina. And they also had three more sons over the course of several years. Starting in 1801, though, they started to have issues with their crops. And eventually they decided to leave that farm in North Carolina and move west, as so many of their friends and acquaintances had already done. So in 1804, John, Lucy, and their children, along with a slave named Chloe, who had been given to the couple by Lucy's father when they got married, and Chloe's eight children, made their way to Red River, Tennessee. This is near the area that's now known as Adams, Tennessee, which is not far from Nashville. And the Bells were welcomed into the community, where John bought a home and some property that included both barns and an orchard. And the family established their farm, and they were, again, pretty prosperous. And everyone really adored Lucy. That comes up over and over that everyone just loved this woman. And over time, Bell added to his land holdings, and he became one of the most wealthy, influential, and respected men in the area. As the farm got bigger, as is so often the case, the family did too. The Bells had several more children, including a daughter born in 1805 named Elizabeth. She was called Betsy, and she becomes central to this whole haunting legend. After 13 years in Red River, things started to shift from the happy prosperity that the Bell family had enjoyed up to that point. Initially, the first thing that happened was that John Bell saw a weird animal. He spotted a creature out in the cornfield that he would later describe as having a dog's body and a rabbit's head. He shot at it and he missed, and one of his sons, Drew Bell, saw a massive bird on a fence near the home. When he went to get a gun to shoot at it, the bird, which he thought was a turkey, revealed itself to be a strange bird that he just couldn't identify. Betsy, at one point, was walking in the woods with the younger children of the family one evening when she saw what appeared to be a little girl in a green dress swinging in the trees. Uh, that girl was not actually there. And then one of their servants, named Dean, claimed that he had seen a black dog on his regular walks to visit his wife, who was also a slave and was owned by a friend of the family named Alex Gunn. And this dog would allegedly trot along in front of Dean while he walked over to the Gunn home, and then the dog would vanish just as they arrived there. The next strange happening was a variety of tapping noises inside the family home, and they couldn't figure out what the source of these noises was. These noises had actually been going on for some time, and at first they had been attributed to much more ordinary things, like the children being mischievous. But it continued to get more frequent and louder, and there was a faint voice that the members allegedly started to hear. It was too feeble for anyone to make out the words or the songs, but they sounded like they were coming from an elderly woman. And according to the Bell children, their bedding began to be pulled off of them in the night. And they also reported that animals, possibly rats, could be heard chewing on their bedposts, but that whenever the noises were investigated and someone lit a candle or tried to look, nothing was actually there. 
Then they started to report that they heard what sounded like dogs fighting in the house. And then there were sounds of chains on the floor. And then additional creepier noises were also detailed in William Bell's account, including what sounded like the smacking of lips and occasional gulping. Those are like the sort of great details for me. Like that's such a good creepy noise detail. (laughs) Like if you were just lying in bed and you heard what sounded like someone gulping or smacking their lips near you, wouldn't that be delightfully creepy? And at this point, the the <laughs> symptoms of their haunting are kind of like a haunting smorgasbord. It's like we're just going to have a buffet yeah, of strange sure. things happening. Uh, and then we're going <laughs> to have new strange things and then different strange things. Yeah. And the next strange thing was that William uh, recounted that he felt as though someone had grabbed his hair in the night and began to lift him off the bed by his head with it. So this this elderly woman's frail voice we've been talking about that had been too uh, faint to make out. Not so much the case when speaking to Betsy. This witch is said to have given some very clear direction that Betsy should not marry her intended, which was a boy named Joshua Gardner. And we are going to get back to that in a little bit. But before we talk about how the family handled all of this wacky stuff that was happening, like Tracy said, it is sort of the haunting smorgasbord, uh, we're going to pause for a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. Alrighty, that sponsor is Periscope Data. Periscope Data makes it easy for you to lighten your workload by giving you answers immediately. You can save time with faster queries, faster visualization, and faster sharing. You can answer those big questions and really talk about some high-level important stuff instead of just running routine data tasks. Why would you want to run slow queries on old data when Periscope allows you to run, save, and share analyses over billions of data rows in seconds? I have friends that have worked in data and research for television, I think they would be very excited by this prospect. So uh, Periscope Data is the ultimate tool for fast and flexible data visualization. It's plug and play for immediate use and immediate value. There's no uploading, no copy, no hassle. You can analyze data 150 times faster. Anybody that works in data knows that this is like a, a massive shift. Uh, the other cool thing is that to set it up and work with it, it doesn't take a, m- a million years, which will sometimes happen with some other services. Your charts and your dashboards are always going to be up to date. You don't have to run the same query over and over. You can really manipulate that data any way you want to look at it from any possible angle. It's really, really amazing. Periscope data is a powerful and intuitive tool that will bring your analysis to the next level. Get a free trial today by going to www.periscopedata.com slash history. That is www.periscopedata.com slash history. So getting back to the Bells, uh, John Bell, the patriarch of the family, started to have some medical issues during all of this, and his condition gradually worsened. Initially, it was described as, quote, a stiffness of tongue. So when he was having an episode of this illness, he couldn't eat, and he described it as feeling as though a stick was lodged sideways in his mouth between his cheeks, preventing him from eating. So when he would try to eat, the food would kind of fall right back out. At first, John was encouraging the family to keep the strange happenings at the farm and his mystery illness under wraps. But eventually, he disclosed what was going on to a neighbor and friend named James Johnson. 
Johnson and his wife spent a night at the Bell home at John Bell's request, and they were hoping that they could maybe shed some light on the situation and offer an outsider's perspective as to what's going on. And after leading the family in prayer and then retiring to bed, Johnson and his wife witnessed the same phenomena that the Bells had been experiencing, including hearing all of the noises and racket, having their bed covers pulled off of them as they slept. Uh, and Mr. Johnson apparently had the presence of mind to try to speak with the mysterious entity, and he determined that A, it was intelligent, and B, it would cease its actions when spoken to, and then C, that John Bell should no longer keep this situation secret, but should seek the help of the community. So a lot of people started going to the Bell home to visit and to investigate this spirit, who at this point people were saying was called Kate. And really all they were figuring out was that Kate really hated John Bell and seemed like basically a gossipy busybody and not an actual problem. Her manifestations did start to become stronger, and it became clear that she was speaking Bible verses and singing hymns. When asked who she was and what she wanted, she replied, I am a spirit. I was once very happy, but have been disturbed. Later, after she grew more adept at communicating, the spirit apparently said that she had been buried nearby, but that her grave had been disturbed, and that one of her teeth was under the bell home, and she was looking for it. Yeah, there is a whole wackadoodle story about uh, an animal's head showing up and a tooth falling out of it and into a crack in the floor. Um, but we don't know. Well, and this whole thing we were talking about before the break that was like, and then there were noises, and then there was singing, and then there was levitation, and then there was someone grabbing my hair. I'm like, none of these things are really creepy to me. Uh, but then we get to this part where she's like, and my tooth is under your house. And I'm like, all right, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out of the story. Ghostly dentistry is where Tracy draws the line. Uh, and this witch, though, was devoted to John's wife, Lucy. Just like everyone else, she loved Lucy. And as we said, she had come to be known as Kate. And this consequently has associated her with a neighbor of the Bells, a woman named Kate Batts. And we're going to talk about Kate Batts a little bit later in the episode. And there's even the suggestion that she, this disembodied voice, claimed herself to be Kate Batts. But whatever her uh, true origin, whether it was Kate Batts or just a, a mystery person, she became downright famous in the area. And for a time, she almost seems to have been seen as a good influence. People were just afraid enough of her that they lived good, honest lives. According to Ingram's writings, quote, everybody got good. The wicked left off swearing, lying, and whiskey drinking. The avaricious were careful not to covet or lay hands on that which belonged to their neighbors, lest Kate might tell on them. No man allowed his right hand to do anything that the left might be ashamed of. And the story of uh, what the spirit was troubled about, i.e. that that lost tooth, among other things, did not stay consistent, though. So later, she told a visitor that she had once had a great deal of wealth, but had buried it, and she would only tell Betsy Bell the location of this buried treasure. She later eventually told several men in the family, as well as close friends of the family, on the stipulation that they give every dollar that was buried to Betsy. And these men went out and they dug and they dug in the named spot, which was this very tricky area. Uh, I think it was near a stream, but it was like a there was a lot of heavy rock over it. And they found nothing. And the spirit, uh, when they 
reported back to the house that no, there's nothing in that spot. The spirit allegedly laughed at them that night and taunted them for being so easily duped. In 1818, as the stories of Kate were becoming a lot more well-known in the area, the church excommunicated John Bell. Sometimes this is reported as being due to his association with supernatural events. But there was a more mundane element to the story, which we're going to talk about in a bit. Yeah, and I I will give you a slight spoiler alert that for my money, the reason he was excommunicated is way more troubling than any paranormal thing. Uh, There was also, allegedly, a notable human visitor to the Bell Farm in 1819. The claim is that Major General Andrew Jackson came to stay. And during the War of 1812, the three eldest Bell sons had served under Jackson at the Battle of New Orleans. Jackson had heard, according again to this tale, of the alleged haunting and even made a joke that the witch must be holding them up when the horses he was, that were part of his, uh, his travel group suddenly stopped as they approached the Bell Farm. And according to Ingram's accounts of the visit, this entourage, uh, that was following Andrew Jackson was intending to spend a week there, but they left after just one night. She went on to spend different yarns to subsequent visitors to the Bell home, claiming at one point to be the spirit of a young girl and in another to be the ghost of a family friend's stepmother. Nothing was consistent, much like all the earlier <laughs> symptoms of the haunting. And it seems like things were shifting away from jovial toying into being a little more sinister. At one point, when family friend William Porter was staying at the house, Kate claimed to want to get in the bed with him. And he said that the bed cover slowly twisted into a human shape next to him and sort of curled up next to him. And thinking at that point that he had the witch captured, Porter picked up all of those bedclothes and intended to throw them in the fire. But they began to emit a really foul smell and he dropped them on the floor. In September of 1820, Lucy Bell had pleurisy, and the spirit allegedly acted as a nursemaid, singing to her and checking in on her in what's described as a very loving way. According to William's account, Kate even brought hazelnuts and grapes to the sick woman. And the manifestations uh, then had shifted from irritating... We said they kind of ratcheted up and were less jovial, but then they became downright chilling... So Betsy Bell began experiencing attacks that harkened back to the descriptions of spirit torture from the Salem witch trials that had happened more than a 100 years prior to the events on the Bell Farm. She described the sensation of feeling like she was being pricked with pins and as though she was being slapped by a disembodied non-corporeal hand. And her friends actually said that they witnessed welts appearing on her face and saw at times even her shoes being forcibly pulled off of her body. The attacks on Betsy slowly subsided, but as they did, John Bell's health really deteriorated. He started having spells that lasted a day or two, during which his tongue would once again seem to stiffen and his face would go into spasms. Once these spells had passed, he seemed to be in fine health and he went about his life. But the in- the incidents became more frequent and longer and more severe over time. Additionally, John Bell was tormented in a more assaultive way. He started to experience this feeling of being slapped in much the same way that Betsy had described, as well as also having his shirt shoes jerked off of his feet repeatedly as he attempted to walk in the fields. On the morning of December 19th, 1820, John Bell could not be roused from sleep. 
A vial was found near his body that contained a dark liquid. And according to William's story, the family sent for a doctor from Port Royal, and the spirit could be heard saying that the family patriarch would never rise from his bed again. This part's really hard for me, so if you're an animal person... Uh, maybe don't listen for the next 20 seconds. The remaining contents of that mystery vial were tested by giving it to a cat, and that cat, of course, quickly died. The remaining bits of liquid were thrown in the fire and then produced a blue flame. John Bell died on December 20th, and the witch is said to have sung joyously throughout his burial there on the farm. After John's death, the spirit is said to have largely stopped in her activities, although she lingered into 1821 before she told Lucy that she would go but return another seven years later. Of course, she stayed true to that in uh, Ingram's book and appeared at the farm again in 1828. So when she reappeared, uh, she started doing the same sorts of things as she had been doing early on in 1817, tapping around the house, pulling covers off of beds. Uh, but this only went on for two weeks, and then Kate once again vanished. So at that point, William, his brother Joel, and their mother Lucy were the only people still living in the house, and they had all agreed to ignore the spirit and not engage with it. And apparently that worked, as she left the Bell family seemingly for good. And now that we've given some of the highlights of the Bell Witch's time in Tennessee, as based on William Bell's alleged recollection, we will talk about things from a more critical perspective. Before we do that, we're going to take a brief word from a sponsor. That sponsor is Squarespace. Holly and I have both built our own personal websites using Squarespace. We have both had an awesome time with it. Yeah, if you'll remember last time we talked about it, I had said I had not used my site in a while. And I suspected that when I went back, it would be a smooth sailing. I wouldn't have a lot of relearning. I like to say how correct I am, and I was totally correct about that one. Awesome. So, yeah, like like Holly is saying, uh, creating a web a website with Squarespace is a simple and intuitive process. You can add and arrange all of your content and your features with a click of a mouse. Uh, if you sign up for a year, you get a free custom domain name. And I'm just going to say, when I did that, when I was uh, getting ready for my wedding, it was the easiest domain name purchase and association with the website I have ever experienced. Uh, because I've set up websites on a number of places before, and it has always been a whole lot trickier than it was on Squarespace. The templates are really beautiful. There are e-commerce tools if you are selling things on your website, and they also have 24-7 customer support. Everybody on the customer care team is an experienced Squarespace user. They work in a Squarespace office, and no matter how technical your problem is or how trivial-seeming your question might be, somebody is always going to be online to help you out. You can start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. One more time, that is squarespace.com with the offer code HISTORY to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. There are a lot of theories about the reality of the Bell Witch and what was actually going on at this farm. If it was a ruse, one of the theories is that someone wanted to break up the relationship between Betsy Bell and her fiancé, Joshua Gardner. And if that had been the motivation, the ruse was in fact successful. Betsy was frightened enough by the witch's admonitions against her marriage to Gardner that she broke up with him in 1821. 
One of the contemporary explanations, and one that we alluded to in the intro to the episode, was that two of the bellboys had learned ventriloquism when they had traveled to New Orleans on trading trips. And then they had taught Betsy the skill, and the three of them got together to basically launch a big hoax. But there were some times during these events of the alleged haunting when one or the other of the Bell boys was away from the family home. And then there were also times when all three of them were present in plain sight when the noises and the witch's voice were heard. And Betsy was, by all accounts, a lovely girl and very bright as well, who was admired by virtually all of the young men in the area. And there have been theories that a romantic rival may have been behind the hauntings. And while the issues began when she was only 12, by the time she had been moved to break up with her longtime sweetheart Joshua, she was 16. One of the more likely suspects in the whole suitor theory is a man named Richard Powell. Richard had been the Bell children's teacher, but as Betsy grew toward adulthood, he seemed to take a romantic interest in her, and he was also a close friend of the family. And one of the things that makes Powell look so suspicious is that while he did not apparently tell his friends in the area, he was married. Uh, his wife Esther was almost 20 years older than he was, and she died of unspecified causes the same year that Betsy finally broke off her engagement to Joshua Gardner. And uh, I just want to note that while this is mentioned in several texts with a citation of the uh, records of Robertson County, Tennessee, I found this little bit of information too late in the game to actually get eyes on those records for confirmation, but it does show up in multiple different accounts. Richard Powell started to openly pursue Betsy after her ties to Gardner were severed, and he and Betsy were married in 1824. Richard died 17 years later, and Betsy remained a widow for the rest of her life until her death in 1890. So, yeah, some people think that that sort of chain of events points circumstantially to Richard Powell having orchestrated the whole thing. Uh, And remember that thing about John Bell being excommunicated from the church? Uh, It did not have to do with anything paranormal. It actually had to do with some shady lending practices uh, and some usury in relation to the sale of slaves. Uh, So John Bell was basically making some shady business deals and the the church did not like that. So that is why he was excommunicated. It did not have anything to do with demonic possession. Another incongruity from the Ingram book, which is the primary source that most other Bell Witch authors draw from, is that visit from Andrew Jackson. There's never been anything to document Jackson making this trip, and Andrew Jackson never wrote about it in his personal diaries. One would think that such a novel experience would merit at least a line or two in a diary. Yeah. And as for Kate Batts, It's kind of a world of no. Uh, While there have been a vast array of rumors about her, including that she and John Bell had a bad business dealing that led her to curse him, and another that she was in fact pregnant by John Bell and that he killed her, she actually died decades after John Bell, so she could not have been vengeance haunting him, and he definitely did not kill her. It does appear, at least in the Ingram account, that Kate Batts was kind of an outsider in the community and was viewed with some suspicion. She was loud and brash, which for a woman in the late 18th and early 19th century basically meant scary. Rumors of witchcraft had been attached to her at various points in time, but more because it seems like she was peculiar and not because of any actual malicious behavior. So it seems like she was really more of a convenient figure for the people making up this story to pin on her rather than somebody that actually was a ghost. 
And there was, even in that first account, the link between the two, suggesting that Kate Batts was somehow manifesting the various events through witchcraft. But apparently, even when the Bell Witch was being perceived as a good thing, Kate Batts was incensed to be associated with it. So that idea really doesn't hold much water. Uh, and she was, also we should point out, Lucy Bell's niece. She was related to the Bells. Her father was actually Lucy Bell's brother. And there's also no record of this business deal gone bad between her and John Bell that instigated this ill will. And there's no real motive for her to go to so much trouble to pester this family. On top of all these facts that don't really add up, there's the matter of the Ingram book and its truthfulness. Ingram, a newspaper man, was writing it two generations removed from the actual events. We always talk about how unreliable even fresh eyewitness accounts can be. So even if he did have a manuscript that really was written by William Bell, that manuscript would have been written, according to Ingram's own introduction, in the 1840s, 20 years after the then-adolescent William had experienced the so-called Bell Witch events. So it's like, number one, a, a book Ingram was writing much later after William Bell had allegedly written it down 20 years after it had purportedly happened. And there's also the possibility that Ingram assembled this tale as a deceptive fiction to capitalize on its sensational nature. There are just enough verifiable details about the family that it might convince readers, while the supernatural elements of it are entirely unverifiable. None of it really passes muster as a true historical account of this alleged haunting. And then, I mean, this reminds me of when we were talking about Anne Bonny and Mary Read. Uh, one of the things that seems the most telling about how this, this whole account is that Ingram was incredibly insistent about how it was completely indisputable. Uh, here is a passage that we're going to read that's particularly unrelenting in how no one with any integrity could possibly ever doubt it. Knowing the character of the men and women who testify to these things, no one can disbelieve them or believe that they would have willfully misrepresented the facts. Nor can it be reasonably said that so many reputable witnesses had fallen into an abnormal state of mind and were so easily deceived in all of their rigid investigations. A man may be arraigned for trial on the charge of murder, the court and jury knowing nothing about the facts and circumstances, but they are bound by both physical and moral law to believe and find the man guilty on the testimony of reputable witnesses, detailing the facts and circumstances, and yet may form no opinion or idea as to the state of mind or cause that prompted the prisoner to commit the murder." So it is in this instance. The testimony is convincing of the truth of the wonderful phenomena at John Bell's, but the motive or cause is beyond our comprehension, and to this extent, the facts must be accepted. It really happened, y'all. <laughs> You're horrible if you doubt it. <laughs> of course, today, the Bell Witch is a moneymaker. People love a good haunting story. So it gets told and retold and the details shift and change just like gooey ectoplasm. Aside from the dates associated with things like births and deaths, writings about the Bell Witch often are really different in their details. I remember somebody telling me a story about uh, the Bell Witch, I think when I was in college, that had basically a completely different cast of characters. <laughs> there, yeah, there there was even a book written recently by a clairvoyant that dispelled the long-standing myth that the family was cursed. 
Uh, and this instead indicated that the land that they had moved to in Tennessee was the source of this curse. Not only has this story been used as an ingredient in numerous films, but also a variety of, quote, documentary examinations of the paranormal. For a small fee, you can tour the Bell Witch Cave, which is on the property, and uh, is allegedly haunted, possibly by Kate herself. So if you're hankering to try to meet her, you can. It's probably what you're going to see is a cave. <laughs> yeah. Uh yeah, it's one of those things there. You'll have people talk about like all of the various components of it and how, you know, the blue flame. One of the things that's a little more science based is uh, that when they threw that that liquid from that vial into the fire and it burned blue, that that could be an indication of arsenic so that perhaps someone had been systematically poisoning John Bell. But again, it's unclear who might have been doing that, although apparently he was kind of a weasel in some business dealings, so we don't know. Uh, but it definitely doesn't, when you really start to look at the, the facts of things, all of the, the elements that get sens- sensationalized as super spooky don't really hold up to scrutiny. So that's the scoop on the Bell Witch. Do you also have some listener mail? Uh, I do have listener mail, and this isn't so much mail. It is a series of tweets about our recent episode uh, from Salt Lake Comic Con, where we talked about historical fiction. Uh, and it it was a discussion about some sexist things that was kind of inaccurate, which was right. troubling to both Tracy and, uh, and we were, myself. We were both troubled and frustrated. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just going to read them all as one long narrative because it, it's multiple tweets. I don't want to, like, out this person. I don't want them to get dogpiled on. But their perception was very incorrect. Uh, so they say, hey, Mist in History, listening to the Salt Lake Comic Con podcast, couldn't avoid noticing the gender split on attitude toward research on that stage. It seems equal parts astonishing and predictable that the women said, yeah, I do tons of work to make sure everything's right because I take it so seriously. And the men said, nah, I just kind of wing it on Wikipedia. Uh, also, I try to avoid needing to do it. And my favorite, I make my wife do that. I'm sure she goes uncredited. Men are allowed to be so much more casual in their approach to their craft. The level, level of privilege it takes is staggering. The one author who said he likes your podcast because it deals with figures and moments he wouldn't otherwise research made me yell at my phone. Really? A male author wouldn't seek out forgotten and predominantly woman-centric history? Gasp. I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. I wonder how his characters break down across the gender spectrum. Anyway, I'm sure you can't respond for the sake of being politic, but please know we heard and noticed that. And I'd love to have been able to see your polite poker faces along with the podcast. Keep up the good work. There's so much to unpack here, Holly. (laughs) Oh my goodness, you have, oh, that could not be a more accurate, uh, a less accurate characterization of what was actually taking yeah. place so, on that panel. So first of all, there were actually two different male writers on the panel. Uh, one, Brian McClellan described himself as more of a Wikipedia researcher where he would like, he was writing historically inspired fantasy. And so what he would do is like quick checks of historical bits. Uh, to kind of inform that. And then also reading a lot of history that would, that would sort of make its way ultimately into his books without maybe directly intending it. He would sort of discover historical parallels. The other person, Brian Young, is constantly surrounded by history books and primary sources, including reading a bunch of World War One era newspapers and their ads for his work. So the characterization that the woman on the panel was really detail oriented and the men were not is not really reflective of the actual panel. 
Correct. And I, I think it's one of those things that when this came up and Tracy and I were discussing it, I kind of feel like there's there's no way to win if it had been split the other way and it were a woman that said, oh, I'm I just write epic fantasy and I don't do hard history and I sometimes use Wikipedia to check things. The response would be, oh, she's lazy and stupid. Women can't do history right. Like there's no way to win. Yeah. And Brian was very clear at the front. Like he said, this comes with the caveat that I don't I, I'm casually using history Right. And that was really one of the reasons you and I were both really excited to have him on the panel to talk about the many different ways that history makes its way into books. That it's not just yeah. a historical novel about the, you know, the Gallipoli campaign. Like, that's the not the only type of historical fiction that there is. Um, Correct. <laughs> there is definitely gender bias to talk about in that. Uh, like women feel like they have to be twice as prepared because they're, they're going to be under a higher level of scrutiny and that's valid. Um, but like that's, that's not really what was in play in that part of the discussion in the podcast. Also, uh, Brian McClellan does thank his wife in the acknowledgments of his books. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and he, he was pretty clear on the panel that part of the reason that he will occasionally turn to her to look things up is because she loves digging into that stuff. Whereas to him, he would rather just keep writing very quickly. He doesn't like to stop and do research in the middle. And it seems like a very good relationship for them. Um, as far as Brian Young saying we brought up things he would never find a research, it's not because he's not doing research. No one person can hit all of the things. No, and it, his, that comment was also not about women. Like, I feel like that was a piece that reinforced this idea that our podcast is mostly about women, when in reality, it seems that way to people, but the numbers never reflect a mostly about women focus. Like, and then the examples that he cited of episodes that he listened to over and over while writing books were not even our episodes that were about women. So uh, that was a little frustrating to me and and hurt my heart a little bit because uh, Brian is a longtime friend of this show. He was in our first live show that was about the children's illustrated history of presidential assassination. Knowing him personally, like he is definitely an ally and somebody who takes constructive steps to make the world better and to be actively anti-sexist and actively anti-racist. So to hear somebody take that out of context from what he said in the panel was uh, really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I you said it more eloquently than I probably would put together. I said many times, both on the show and at our live shows, Brian is like a brother to me. So and I know him to be one of the best humans. As Tracy said, he takes such steps and such care to make the world a better place that it was like, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the last thing that I definitely wanted to take a moment to say was that there was no polite eye rolling and maintaining of a poker face during our historical fiction podcast at Salt Lake Comic Con. No. We were I was so grateful to all of those authors. Yeah. And I thought they were all amazing. Yeah. Well and if any of them had said something that we felt like we should challenge, we would have challenged it and not sat there and politely rolled our eyes. And in fact in the Q and A session, there was that moment where <laughs> Where a panelist said something that that was not quite in line with with factual stuff, uh, and and we noted that, and like, so please don't think that if somebody says something that needs to be talked about, we're just going to politely nod and roll our eyes and not bring it up because that's not really how we work 
as a show. We're also not going to drag our panelists who have agreed to be on our panel out of the goodness of their hearts over the coals. <laughs> yeah. In front of yeah. people like that would be rude. But if somebody says something that we have questions about or thoughts about or like, oh, actually, I kind of wonder if that really holds up, uh, you know, if that is biased in some way, that's, that's probably a thing we would say. Yeah. I hope other people did not have that same uh, complete disparity of what went down yeah. from their perception of well, it. Well, and one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about it on the show was that it was not a series of tweets that all came directly to us. It started with a public call out of us. It started with like, you know, our Twitter handle in the middle of the tweet so that others would see it rather than just coming directly to us. So it's like it was right. a public statement about our panel and not a private correspondence to us about it. Correct. So that is the scoop. Uh, I hope we <laughs> we have dispelled any any misconceptions about how that all went. No, and like, uh, like again, I said, there's definitely gender bias to talk about, but having three people on the panel, one of whom is a man who does like a cursory level of research, and the other is a woman who does intense research because of the different, va- vastly different types of fiction they are writing, does not mean... That's not a, a data set. Right. Right. Especially when the third person on the panel is another man who does a lot of detailed historical research in his work. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the scoop on that. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are across all social media as at Missed in History, including Twitter. Uh, we're at Missed in History. We're at Facebook.com slash Missed in History. We're on Instagram as at Missed in History. We are, uh, on Pinterest as Missed in History. We're on Tumblr as Missed in History. Basically, Missed in History is going to get you there. Uh, if you would like to do a little bit of research just for fun, you can go to our parent site, HowStuffWorks.com. Type in almost anything you can think of in the search bar and you're going to turn up a lot of results about uh, some interesting articles, probably some quizzes. There's lots of content there to explore. You can also visit us at mistinhistory.com where you will find show notes for every episode that Tracy and I have worked on as well as an archive of every episode of the show ever of all time. Uh, so we encourage you, come and visit us at howstuffworks.com and mistinhistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.